Morozov watch. Hear that? Guess who's back? Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 253 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And it's been a while. It's been a long while since we've had a Morozov watch. Dun, 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 right. dun. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, man. Our, 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 you know, the patron saint of the podcast has been in his long slumber. You know, he's been producing his own podcast, which I... I'm looking forward to if, if listeners do not know, got got a, a a kind of mini series coming out soon. A kind of what is it like a um, an oral history of sorts of Cybersyn based on a ton of fucking interviews with with like primary source, you know, people involved in the actual um, development of Cybersyn, and and it's just like a much bigger, broader kind of like political, economic, technological, geo-history of, of this. I, I would also say it, it's, it's if people are not familiar with that or they're also interested, there's a really great Future Histories episode Morozov just did that I think both explains the purpose of the project or explains the, the literal podcast and what goes on, but also like gives a good insight into his thinking, you know, and also what we'll be talking about today where like he's thinking a lot more in terms of the geopolitics that need to happen if any sort of technological shift is going to happen and returning, well, not returning because he's been f- obsessed with these questions for a while, but like thinking more th- about what markets are doing, what price systems are doing, social coordination infrastructure, topics that came up in his in his new left review essay, Digital Socialism, question mark, um, and then also in his uh, intervention in the Brenner-Wallerstein debate about um, whether we're in neo-feudalism, or what is it neo-feudalism? Techno-feudalism. Yeah, no, I'm I'm fucking pumped for it. I just, uh, I, I, just refresh my memory. It's called the Santiago Boys. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's a nine-part podcast coming out this summer, nor- Northern Hemisphere summer, my winter, uh, and it's based on two over two hundred interviews in multiple languages. Um, and so that that shit's gonna be amazing. But you know, Morozov's been been you know he's been in the studio, he's been producing, he's been you know sleeping on the couch, working on them beats, you know, wor- working with the artists, get, you know, getting this album out. Um, which means he hasn't been doing a lot of a lot of writing, especially not a lot of like long form um, essays and things like that. But he just had a really great piece come out, and you know we got to cover it. You know we got to talk about it um, in Le Monde Diplomatique. Uh, he just had a, a great piece come out um, in multiple languages. In the English language, we'll put a link to it. Uh, still behind a paywall, but it'll, it'll come out soon, I'm sure. Um, but it's a, it's on the geopolitics of AI, 
um, the you know Cold War 2.0, the the deepening relationship between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon, just a, a ton of fucking stuff. Really, really interesting essay. Really well done. Dives a lot into it. I think like from a very uh, interesting frame as well. It's not just retreading all the old familiar ground um, of like, you know, the AI arms race and stuff like that. Like it adds some new kind of geopolitical realpolitik uh, kind of a- a- angle to it as well, which I think is you know, really fleshes out what is, you know, uh, increasingly becoming an extremely important, like militarily, uh, geopolitically, global uh, hegemony wise uh, topic, which is, you know, who, who's going to own and control um, AI and, is, and particularly like what national interest is AI going to serve? Whose national interest? And there's a lot of fucking... Uh, angling and influence peddling and money and so on being being thrown around um, largely between the U.S. building its own coalitions and China um, doing the same. So yeah, no, I, I'm excited to. I mean, I'm always excited to see a new Morozov piece, especially a longer, you know, not just a Guardian column where he can really kind of stretch out flex and uh and and show us what he's been thinking about and it is a really good one right because it 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 bears down on like a topic everyone is talking about artificial intelligence we have all been talking about it forever and we are all kind of familiar with the ad nauseum perspectives that have been drawn through right there's a question about the large language models and the ethics of their construction the ecological cost of them and the sustainability the questions over whether these things are sentient or not, the debates over in which directions they can transform, uh, concerns about applications that they could be used to disrupt, automate, or minimize certain labor practices and the labor practice or certain t- forms of labor and work and the labor practices on the back end, concerns about what the data sets have inside of them and how they could create certain types of artificial intelligences or agents uh, that are racist or biased in one form or another. But what is missing here, as tends to miss or disappear in a lot of discussions of specific tech, especially tech that, you know, for some strange reason has a lot of money behind it, is the military angle, the geopolitical angle, right? The questions about, you know, where a lot of the fun, what are the, what's the interest driving a lot of this um, funding, this moment of excitement about new technology? Because remember, like, you know, as much as we like to, and, you know, we do, shit on a lot of the private sector for roles that they may have in various technologies, the prime mover, you know, the Aristotelian mover here of a lot of technological development is the American military, right? Specifically the Pentagon. And Morisov's piece here is a really great reminder of that, uh, that weaves in a lot of really fun elements, but also goes at length to try to say, okay, um, we a lot of people are confused or not really sure what direction the tech is going to go, if it's actually as dangerous as it is or not. Let's actually just glom onto the concrete things we do know, which you can start that thread back at with the military funding, the military connections, and the orbits that these people are building, as well as analogs to what some of those same people were doing 
in the in the original Cold War you know, with the Soviet Union, and now thinking, okay, well, there's a lot of this artificial intelligence is being invoked as part of this discussion in relation to China. So maybe there is another way we can grab that over and understand this better than like all the other kind of narrow, important but narrow channels that we've been focusing on um, in most of the discourse. And when like these questions of geopolitics do come up in the more kind of mainstream discourse, it's like it's always in the uh, the the most fucking two dimensional and uh, offensively um, stupid ways possible, right? It's it's our boy uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who uh, you shared with me, Ed, was just recently the uh, uh, profiled in the Economist. So, you know, it's it's a it's a fucking lucrative business being um the dumb guy's idea of a smart guy <laughs> we're <Yeah>. talking about <laughs> this shit <laughs> it's a fucking uh it's like money for nothing and your chicks for free uh <laughs> if you want you know <laughs> but you know it's like when when these motherfuckers do talk about something like china right like it is always in the most two-dimensional uh, offensive and stupid way possible. It does not actually get to any of the uh, interesting and important um, geopolitical dynamics going on here, or um, actually penetrate to the like the question of who, who, who's who's trying to pull the strings here, right? And then, and that's you know we'll get into it as we go through Morozov's piece, but that's what he's really focusing in on is you know who's trying to pull the strings, and we'll we'll see it some some very old uh, and familiar faces um, doing that. But like uh, the dangling keys that distract us from questioning these things in terms of their, their military relevance and their geopolitical relevance, you know, beyond the two dimensional view, you know, it, it leads to some conspiratorial thinking. If I, if I do say so myself, that's like, see, they don't want you to think about that. They want you to think about, existential risk they want you to think about if the speak and spell is sentient you know <laughs> like they, they they don't want they don't want you to think about like you know actually serious questions they want they want you to focus on the most unserious questions possible and you know i i don't know how much that is to a degree like a a psyop in terms of like an intentional um direction of the discourse uh or not but like but it is certainly the case that that's that's how uh, we overwhelmingly um, talk about these things. You know, we in the the kind of royal collective we sense, and uh, and and there's just so much more that's actually like more like materially important here than questioning. Like, you know, uh, is AI going to um, uh, you know enhance or el eliminate human civilization? It's like one. If that happens, it ain't going to be because an AI does it. It's going to be because uh, the you know an AI equivalent of a nuclear bomb goes off because the U.S. Uh, and or China fucking lobbed it at each other, right? Like it ain't AI doing it. It's uh, uh, the the old standard of uh, military hegemony, um, you know, doing it. Yeah, you know, like this. I think a, a good analog here, you know, just thinking about with nuclear weapons. I mean, like nuclear weapons is a, a huge concern uh, because of other state actors and the way that they deploy them. Right? Nuclear energy, not so much. Uh, you know, uh, 
well, I mean, well, it depends on how you feel, but the, environmentally, right? But uh, civilian use of it is really not too much of the concern here. The main driver structure force that's influencing and informing how they are deployed, though, are states that want to, you know, weaponize attack and deploy it and point it at one another, um, or pointed in conjunction with one another at others, right? And I think really ultimately the concern here with artificial intelligence, I mean, it, it comes down to the military's interests in it, right? Like we can have a lot of discussions about the ethical guidelines we want to have in place, but it, you know, none of that, that doesn't really fucking matter if the, if the government decides to get behind it, if InQtel decides to start driving it, if the, you know, if the, you know, Five Eyes or if, you know, other military or if NATO, if other military alliances and coalitions decide that they want to, you know, throw money into a collaborative effort as part of a geopolitical struggle with uh, China, then the labor questions and the ethical questions don't really matter, right? Like you can have, as an example, all these high-minded ideals and ethical principles about how robotics should be used. And how corporations shouldn't contribute to the weaponization and the militarization of them, right? But if one of the major drivers of the of the development of it is still police departments, and it's still you know the Pentagon, and if it's still these private entities that are interested in murder tech, uh, then you're gonna get murder tech, no matter what the you know high minded principles are. We don't the capitalist system doesn't really have any in, uh, durable guardrails. Uh, against that, especially not the state capitalist system, right? And so, with artificial intelligence, then you know, as we get into it with with this piece, and you know, start unfurling, right? Um, it's important to think about this. If we understand that a lot of technology at the frontier of uh, the digital economy and the digital world is stuff that has come out of military collaboration with the private sector, been spearheaded by the military, and we also understand that that has shaped the directions and the possibilities for certain tech and made them, you know, more or less uh, synonymous with surveillance, synonymous with social control, synonymous with murder, uh, then we should also understand that, like, before we really start entertaining other ideas about what artificial intelligence can be, we also have to confront the fact that, like, you know, the largest or some of the largest drivers behind it are going to be, hey, what the, what does the Pentagon need? What does the Pentagon want? What does this, like, 800 billion dollar black hole of money that never gets properly audited or doesn't wouldn't properly pass an audit what do they need you know what can we throw their way and uh alternatively what can we lie to them about and hype them on you know uh what do we actually have the capabilities to provide and what can we what can we lie about as part of our marketing strategy analogous to what open ai is doing right screaming about how ai is going to end the world but and that's why they're privatizing their AI, and you should buy into their AI because while it might end the world, there's one you know it can also do really a lot of neat shit um, if you if you if you gin up the correct prompt, right? And so I feel like that's also you know one of the tensions that runs through a lot of this going out. Yeah, I can't remember who said it. It was I think it was some a political scientist or something. I, I I'm I'm gonna paraphrase it, but I just remember them saying like. You know, there there would be no Silicon Valley. There would be no tech sector if it weren't for the military having uh, effectively an infinite bank account and the will to spend it as uh, stupidly and lavishly as po- as 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 possible. Right? Like like that's the basis. Turns out you can build anything with a with a massive subsidy from public treasuries. Turns <laughs> out you can do anything you want. 
Yeah. And, but importantly, like, uh, I, I think the, you know, the, 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 the kind of the necessary political economic, um, you know, qualifier there is not to then be like, oh, so it's actually good then that the military spends all this money on the tech sector because that's what gives us all these like innovations and progress, right? Like, you know, they're, uh, uh, you know, they're able to bear the risk, um, necessary to create all these amazing, you know, products, uh, in our life is like, no, that's, that's the, um, that's the, the, the useful idiots take, uh, on, on that relationship right like in reality what that means is that we have a tech sector that has the military baked into its dna right and like is at the end of the day in the service of the military's interest because those interests are encoded into the the not only the products created but the very structures of um the 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 industry from you know the financing to the corporations to the uh you know development of things and so on like you know that that's that's the story that is often lost though because of course like a lot of people don't want that story to be up front. They don't want that in your, you know, on the tip of your tongue when you think about Silicon Valley, um, unless you are some of the people we are talking, we're going to talk about um, as we go through Morozov's piece, right? Some people like, uh, you know, Gilman Louie and Eric Schmidt and, and many of these others who do actively want you to associate the Pentagon and Silicon Valley, um, you know, in a kind of like uh, military Keynesian uh, Rorschach test, right? Like when I say Pentagon, what do you think? Silicon Valley, you know, <laughs> like that's what they want. And so, I don't know, let's get into it then, because I think this piece uh, in a lot of ways, like in order to understand where we are today and where things are headed with AI and the geopolitics of AI, we do have to go back to the, we, we have to go back to the past um, in order to go back to the future. Uh, and, and it, it is wild that like, you know, the, the, the kind of nomenclature of like cold war 2.0, um, which, you know, to, to varying degrees is, uh, it fits, but also obscures. But like at the same time, I think Morozov very interestingly shows how that's you know calling this like Cold War 2.0, be, you know, an AI arms race between you know America and China. Like it's more than just a kind of pithy way of frame of, of framing these things. In reality, like a lot like the the origins and futures of today's ai really does have its basis in the cold war um in like really really direct through through lines between um many of the same exact people right and and uh and that really shows when you know and, and more when morozov's piece starts with of all things tetris right and uh um tetris uh, the, the, you know, the computer game we all, we all know and love. I, I think the, the, the story of it as, you know, created, um, in Russia, in the, in the Soviet Union, um, during the eighties has largely been lost and forgotten that, you know, Tetris is a, uh, a, a Soviet export. 
um, a, a, an extremely successful one. You know, there's there's a new movie out um, on Tetris. Uh, there's a you know been some books out about the story. It's really interesting, but um, more interesting for for our purposes is like who was involved in bringing Tetris from uh, Russia to the United States and to the West more generally, right? Um, and, and it's some very, very familiar faces. So the, uh, um, the, the software company, the video game company that was the, um, distributor and, and publisher of, of, of Tetris, uh, in the U.S. was this company called Spectrum Holobyte, um, which can you believe <laughs> was owned by one Robert Maxwell, um, the father of Ghislaine Maxwell? That's right. <laughs> it is really like <laughs> like four guys. Um, the whole yeah. the whole world is just four guys um, doing stuff. Uh, like I had no idea that Robert Maxwell um, owned a uh, a Silicon Valley video game company, uh, which then acquired the rights to distribute Tetris. Like. What? <laughs> it's ridiculous. They're all, and, and also, you know, I just makes me uh, perfect timing. Also, just learning about like the new Jeffrey Epstein uh, calendar, and um, and the, and even more people also showing up on his private uh, his private meetings or flights. Uh, I but, saw Chomsky. You know, uh, yeah, trending. <laughs> saw yeah Chomsky, um, who's uh, response. Uh, crazy. My man leaned into it and said, fuck off. What did off. he say? They, I didn't see the response. Uh, Chomsky was like, um, okay, so Epstein arranged several meetings in 2015 and 16 with Mr. Chomsky while he was a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. When asked about his relationship with Epstein, Mr. Chomsky replied in an email, first response is that it is none of your business or anyone's. Second is that I knew him and we met occasionally. In March 2015, Epstein scheduled a gathering with Mr. Chomsky and Harvard uh, University professor Mar Nowak and other academics, according to documents. Mr. Chomsky said they had several meetings at Mr. Nowak's research institute to discuss neuroscience and other topics. Two months later, Epstein planned to fly with Mr. Chomsky and his wife to have dinner with them and movie director Woody <laughs> Allen and his wife, Soon Yi Previn. The documents show. Ooh. And then Chomsky oh, you mean said, his, if, uh, his old stepdaughter? Yeah, yeah his stepdaughter. <laughs> yeah. And then Chomsky said, if there was a flight, which I doubt it, it would have been from Boston to New York, 30 minutes. I'm unaware of the principle that requires I inform you about an evening spent with a great artist. Bro. <laughs> Chomsky. <laughs> Chomsky. <laughs> so man. Epstein and Woody Allen. <laughs> you know, I saw someone um, I saw someone say, uh, they were like, oh my God, Chomsky's... Um, Chomsky's 90,000 years old. Leave the fucker alone. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know, man. My, 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 the response here, low crazy. Uh, he said, he told uh, the journal that at the time of the meetings, quote, what was known about Jeffrey Epstein was that he had been convicted of a crime and had served a sentence according to U.S. laws and norms that yields a clean slate. Oh. Uh, according to oh. U.S. laws and norms, the, the thing that Chomsky famously loves <laughs> and defends. Right. Oh, 
Yeah, the anarchists. Bro, we're taking why, an L on this one. We're taking an L today. <laughs> I know. Why is one? Why is Chomsky responding to his own emails? My man should have uh, multiple assistants doing that for him. Chomsky okay. uses email the way we use Twitter. You know, that's <laughs> he really does. <laughs> Oh, too much, too much. Um, right, well, well, you know, I, I, I again, I just, just uh, truly insane. I did not. Ugh. I saw the trending. I did not look into it, and uh, no, it yeah. did, that did not disappoint, uh-huh. um, or rather, it did deeply disappoint. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> back to our, uh, back to our um, Cold War discussions, of which Chomsky talks about a lot. Um, like you said, there's the there's the Ghislaine Maxwell connection, uh, which also you know mainly through her father, who is most likely owned through, by intelligence. Um, there's the uh, connection to Tetris. There's the connection to um, Gilman Louie, right? Who was the chief executive of the company of Spectrum Holobyte, right? Yeah, Spectrum Holobyte, the distributor of Tetris in the U.S., right? And they had done marketing in a brochure that had like used Cold War themes, Russian folklore music, Soviet cosmonauts to make it a hit despite it being Reagan era America, right? Um, this being an early example of like, hey, there's a geopolitical strive, uh, struggle for um, dominance of the planet. We can make money off that. No problem, right? Gilman Lewin, Louis, who was the chief executive of Spectrum Holobyte, is now, as we'll t- as you know, Mozart will unfurl, a key figure in this Cold War 2.0, right? This attempt, you know, part narrative, part uh, strategy, part policy, part reality, to um, have the United States and China enter into this geopolitical conflict over control of the global economy and, you know, vis-a-vis uh, Earth, right? Like global human civilization, the direction in which it will uh, develop. Um, this battle right now is entered these technological fronts, these military fronts, and instead of it being Tetris, you know, used for a little cutesy uh, monetization campaign, it's artificial intelligence, right? Artificial intelligence uh, being like this large catch-all general term to really talk, speak to almost anything that can have algorithms, agents, machine learning, you know, this sort of automation of learning that approximates what we think some intelligence system might have, even if it's not sentient. Um, now, when we're going back to, to Louis, right, Louis's path is really interesting here and, and, and a you know, good on Orshoff on finding this sort of figure, right? This is a pretty interesting guy. You know, so uh, yeah, someone I've never, I'd never heard of, really. Yeah, you know, I've, you I've know. never really heard of him before. Um, and now I'm like, man, I should have. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> right. should have. I'll quote at length because this is a pretty interesting uh, career path, right? So Gilman Louis' career path is a quintessential American journey. He made his name in the early 1980s designing flight simulator games. They were so successful that the U.S. Air Force got in touch. Eventually, one of Louis' startups appeared on Maxwell's radar, and he snapped it up. By the late 1990s, Louis ran InQtel, which was the CIA's own sovereign, uh, sorry, not sovereign, wealth capital, uh, venture capital fund, right? Um, A nonprofit entity whose most famous bet led to the technology behind Google Earth. 
as the Trump administration began making noises about losing the technological race to China, Louis resurfaced as a member of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, a high-profile advisory group led by Eric Schmidt, former chief executive of Google. The tech industry and military contractors don't always see eye to eye. Many American, many American tech companies don't want to lose the Chinese civilian market due to its sheer size. The military contractors have no such constraints. Just a few years later, that connection with Schmidt had blossomed into a closer partnership. So close that Louis is now chief executive of the Schmidt-backed American Frontier Fund, an NQTEL-like nonprofit venture with a mission to help Washington win the 21st century global technology competition. The fund styles itself as a panacea, promising to a panacea, promising to revitalize manufacturing, create jobs, bolster local economies, and unlock the American heartland. And it has a most impressive board, which includes the ex-CEO of IBM and Trump's former national security advisor, right? So, bam, immediately, this guy sits at the center of a lot of really interesting dimensions, right? An attempt to uh, displace private sector um, invest-led investment into this uh, industry and sector, while at the same time still doing close partnerships with industries of Titan, uh, the Eric Schmidt connection, who appears multiple times in this story as well, because, you know, of course, he's advancing his own conception of artificial intelligence, conception of risk of AI, and pre- uh, prescriptions for which, what we should do about it domestically and internationally to um, contain the threat of AI from ourselves, from China, and while winning this, you know, global uh, technology competition, and the role of the state. Um, when it's not leading or when it's not facilitating private investment, right? Such as with AFF or with NQTEL, right? What are the what what should American government do with the slush fund of money that it has that's conjoined to the military budget? And what aims should we develop technology for? Should we develop it to help the domestic homeland? Should we use it to develop the prosperity and the livelihoods of people, or should we use it to engage in a uh, you know in a century long conflict over who's going to be the master of mankind? Right. I mean, to going to Gilman Louis really quick. How do you go from being the seat like? creating a flight simulator game, being the CEO of a video game company that distributes Tetris, to then co-founding and being CEO of InQtel. Um, it seems like that Robert Maxwell connection really paid <laughs> dividends there too. Yeah, right? I didn't even think about that, right? Yeah. How do you go from being the CEO of a video game company to f- co-founding and being CEO of the CIA's venture capital fund. He just, you know, they just had a really interesting conversation on Maxwell's boat minutes before he <laughs> fell off and died. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all and, that and was also, didn't see there. I mean, we'll get more into Gilman Louis because he is like, as you just laid out, he's like rearing his head here, um, being, you know, very much now under the wing of Eric Schmidt. Uh, and, and, you know, um, a, a, a stark partisan for American hegemony over technology. Um, but also because of his role as like a venture capitalist, uh, you know, an investor, a CEO, you know, hanging around Silicon Valley now for like four decades. Um, he's got so many weird connections. He was on the board of directors for, uh, Niantic. 
the company that made Pokemon Go. <laughs> what the fuck? Of course she uh, was. Of course she was. You know. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of weird connections here as well, which also really like I don't know. It begins to ra- it 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 makes me fucking like be fucking Molder over here, bro- busting out the cork boards and red string, and really starting to draw weird connections. Like knowing that this guy is a through and through like American nationalist, American first, you know, uh, a techno hegemony, um, you know, partisan and knowing that about him and then seeing all of the, you know, spots where he's had and with, with deep, deep, deep connections to the intelligence community, the U S intelligence community, and then seeing all the places where he's also held, uh, uh, positions of, of influence and governance over, you know, many, many corporations, um, what I was board of director as CEO, as co-founders, as chairmen, uh, and then being like, Damn, so all of those companies have, at least through him, direct intelligence ties. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yo, we talk about TikTok all the time. What about fucking, what about Pokemon Go? Uh, just Pokemon gamer. Go got a CIA connection, a one degree of separation CIA connection. No, he's just a gamer, man. He just likes to... Um you know, he just he just appreciates that sometimes you need the military industrial complex to show you what uh, life's games are really all about. You know, sometimes sometimes you have to play the most dangerous game, you know, to really appreciate games. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Man. Yeah. So uh, just again, a great find uh, by by Morozov to like draw a, a connection to this guy. Right. Um a huge thing of Schmidt's America's Frontier Foundation um, is that, like, the only way forward is through the military, right? Because, uh, you know, it, 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 it uh, you know, rattles the saber and bangs the drum a lot about China's growing influence and, in, you know, so-called deep tech, right? These, like, quote-unquote frontier technologies, things like artificial intelligence and quantum computing, but also increasingly stuff like biotech, which uh, Eric Schmidt is now also on some kind of like commission or advisory board for the mil- for the, the, the military on biotechnology. Um, so like, you know, through the America's Frontier Foundation, which is supposedly a nonprofit. I mean, more, more on that later, but like, you know, he's really pushing this idea um, that as the uh, AFF's website puts it, quote, frontier tech can't be built in a garage. So this is explicitly a repudiation of the kind of the the lone genius myth of Silicon Valley that you can build the next, you know, Apple in, in a garage. You can build the next Google in a garage, um, anything like that. He's like, no, uh, like, the the this faith in the genius entrepreneur is uh, is a mythology. Um, what you need uh, uh, is um, the military's workshop, right? Like you can't build these deep tech, this frontier tech in a garage, which thus means you cannot beat China in a garage. You can only do it through um, big subsidies and deep partnerships with 
the U.S. military, the only agency uh, in in the U.S. government that has a ton of fucking money to spend and the will to spend it. And so that's where Schmidt has put a lot of his uh, his his influence and and through. Create like bringing people like Gilman Louie under his wing as well, who also have their own um, independent connections to the intelligence agency, to uh, the U.S. government, to the military, and then through acting um, as uh, you know in, in in coordination with Eric Schmidt, um, sometimes you know in on Eric Schmidt's payroll directly, uh, it, it kind of creates this 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 deep state. Uh, blob um, but in a way that like we don't tend to think of right this is a like Silicon Valley <clears throat> deep state uh, in, in the in the Pentagon <clears throat> so then this just raises the question okay like what would this what are these sort of people interested in right well, um, and Morzov shifts to this idea of frontier technologies right deep tech right and so there's uh, an attempt to insist that China you know like you were talking about China is interested in these technologies because they can't be built in a gar- uh, the garage they require industrial policy and so you'll see and you've been seeing in the and in the hollowed halls of journals like foreign affairs right uh, a really uh, you know kind of reliable organ <coughs> of uh, American status quo policy planning um um, and, and foreign policy, right? Um, you know, here it's, it's, you know, an insistence on, look, like we quote, not only want a newfound enthusiasm for a strong AI boosting state, but a reexamination of policy errors of the past, right? And this particular one is co-written by, surprise, surprise, Eric Schmidt. And the, and the essay is kind of like a part of a longer pattern of Eric Schmidt's own moves. His moves done with um, Kissinger, his moves done with their third, uh, their third co-writer, whose name I always forget. Daniel um, Huttenlocker. <laughs> Daniel Huttenlocker, right. Um, who is himself, you know, <laughs> he's not on the level of Kissinger and Schmidt, but he is himself, um, a really interesting and extremely influential guy as well. Like he sits on the board of the MacArthur Foundation. He founded the uh, Cornell Tech and in- uh, Technology Institute. Um, is now like dean of the MIT Computing um, faculty. Right, like he is himself a big. Uh, power player in this sector, but coming at it from academia. Um, so he's kind of, you know, uh, you know, we, you've got these three men sitting on top of the world, you know, the politics, business, and academia. Um, and, but, but it is always also funny that like, uh, like Morozov doesn't even talk about, doesn't even say his name in this piece. When he's talking about, uh, the age of AI, he says a book by, uh, Henry Kissinger, Eric Schmidt, and a third author. <laughs> doesn't even name him, <laughs> which is such a fucking funny slight <laughs> against the guy who, in my in my profession is like on the top of the field at the top of the profession um but it's like it also shows you just like how little respect academia actually has uh when we're talking about like global power (laughs) right right and i think that's also that's an important thing here too because right you know it's these ideological shifts these new anxieties that are emerging these attempts to 
uh, cater to uh, what what policy planners are articulating or thinking or considering uh, the attempts to kind of say, look, like we can't, um, like we're not going to win this with, by trying to like create a class of Silicon Valley Ubermensch and, 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 and raise them from their slumbers in America's garages and basements. Like that's not going to happen. The free market's not going to save us. Um, you know, entrepreneurs, founders, venture capitalists are not going to save us. It's the state and the military working together with a long-term vision for preserving America, preserving its national security. Um, you know, these are the things that are going to get us to where we need to do or go. And this is going to come and come from, you know, uh, uh, things like grants, things like public innovation labs, things like, um, you know, government stakes, government loans, um, you know, no con no compete agreements or you know you know guaranteed deals to buy or to subsidize um, the development of certain technologies and products. Right, this is how Washington can work with private industry instead of writing, instead of trying to um, you know emphasize this mythology of the clear sighted venture capitalist or the or the um, invisible hand. Um, helping these self-interested venture capitalists and entrepreneurs uh, to to generate things that just not only happen to benefit everybody's um, you know own taste and benefit the market and grow the economy and also preserve our national security, right? And 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 as he, and as he lays out here, right, I think one of the things that's also interesting about a lot of these arguments, right, you know, is that they are still they're they're in a double bind right they're trying to articulate to both you know to all the schools of policy elite to all these state planners uh and and, and you know whoever else might be able to help move along a pivot of uh of u.s policy here that we need to abandon orthodoxy and that we need to embrace a robust industrial policy we need to embrace a more uh, committed stance on controlling and defining and deploying technology, but that this this argument ends up being hamstrung, right? Uh, because it's 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 attempts to appeal to everybody, specifically by arguing, making this geopolitical argument in a way that's economically salient to everybody ends up being something where it's like a delusion about getting the best of both worlds, right? We, if we control artificial intelligence in the world, that means we preserve it from China and we use it at home to turbocharge our uh, own economy, right? But doing that ignores the reasons why you're not ever going to have... Like, there's a reason why the Cold War itself had a discrete you know, arrangement, coalition, reality of, for funding, and and why, you know, what people typically refer to as military Keynesism, um, where you, there was a direct channel and conduit of military spend, spending into technological development happened, but it's also not replicable, right? And these attempts to create arguments that say the geopolitical and the economic can be handled together and we can rule the world and make the homeland better, uh, tend to usually ignore or have no answer for how you replicate the military Kenyanism and instead rely a little bit more heavily on these ideological 
gambits and these insistence, you know, as one example, one thing that we've been seeing a lot is this post-neoliberalism thing, right? I, t- I think I talked with you guys when I had gone to this conference where I think everybody was talking about how neoliberalism was over. Well, not everybody. A lot of people were talking about how neoliberalism was over, and then it's like, okay, what are we going to do about markets? Oh, we need those. Okay, what are we going to do about corporations? Oh, well, we kind of need those. All right, well, I don't know what we were talking about uh, <laughs> if neoliberalism is supposed to be over. But similarly here, the the idea is that, okay, well, we can't preserve free markets forever, or we can't preserve free market zealotry and fundamentalism forever. Why don't we transition to an arrangement that allows us to also win this Cold War? But again, with ignoring, you know, why why the military Keynesianism of the of the Cold War was able to take root and last as long as it did, right? Military Keynesianism. Say that three times fast. <laughs> military Keynesianism. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, and and I think on that too, like Morozov makes a really compelling case here that the that you know that the military Keynesianism you know is is not what we are in, right? Like that was very much a kind of like that was a, an era of the Cold War. You know, the fifties and sixties in particular was very much a kind of a time of that military Keynesianism. The idea that like, you know, um, you pump a ton of money into the economy, but you do so do so through the military, but creates all these trickle down innovation effects and trickle down growth. And, and, Oh, look, you know, like we, we, you know, I'm, I, we, we hear so much in school about all of the innovations that came out of NASA, right? And like the, uh, um, the attempt to put a man on the moon and all of that, right? Like that's military Keynesianism. Cause like, you know, NASA, we have to understand NASA as, a, a, a military project, um, you know, and the, the moon launch. And so all of that stuff, right? But I think Morozov makes a really compelling case here that like, that's not what's happened. We are not in an era of military Keynesianism in large part because while the mil- while the government does spend a lot of money the military is uh you know more profligate in its spending than ever before it also refuses to um have ownership <laughs> over over what it spends money on and and what is created from um from that investment right like i, I had no idea until i read this piece that um that the con- that congress had allocated the pentagon uh, a bunch of money to start an in, uh, a venture fund like Incutel, so they would have, you know, because Incutel is a CIA, but the pen, you know, the Pentagon would have its own venture fund um, like Incutel. And however, uh, the Pentagon walked away from it. They said we don't that we don't want this money that you've allocated us to start a venture fund because we don't want to to start and manage. A venture fund, um, and this instead we are happy to partner with chosen, um, uh, you know, investors and innovators in the private sector. And this is exactly why, um, as Morozov writes, you know, this might explain why Schmidt's America's Frontier Fund had to be created as a private venture um, rather than created as a public one, um, you know, uh, backed by the Pentagon. And so. What Morozov argues is that this is not military Keynesianism. This is an, this is more like military neoliberalism. As he writes, perhaps we are more likely to witness the, the weird new regime of military neoliberalism, which ever greater government spending on AI and cloud related matters would widen inequality and enrich the tech giants shareholders. And I mean, 
that seems to be exactly what's happening here, right? Like who, you know, we look at, uh, uh, it's not just Eric Schmidt. It's also Peter Till. It's, it's their whole, you know, their ecosystems of startups and venture funds. Like, you know, it's Palantir and Enduril, but it's also, you know, Rebellion Defense and all of these other people, right? You know, between Peter Till and Eric Schmidt, these are some of the two largest uh, benefactors and promoters of military neoliberalism um, between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon. Um, and they are extremely enriched by this relationship. But also, you know what military neoliberalism is? I mean, this is like uh, one step removed from fascism. I mean, that's exactly what fascism is, is it's military neoliberalism, right? And it's like really more of a question of like, who is the military neoliberalism designed to uh, benefit? Who does it serve? Um, that's really the only um, very thin lines you know, here separating us from uh, a, a fascism or at least a proto-fascism. And um, I mean, that's also very worrying, right? That like, this is not just a moral case of being like, this is fascist, you know, like a kind of moral exclamation. This is like, no, really tracing like a political economic um, development of a regime of investment and innovation and, and interest and seeing that it is, in, it is well along the trajectory towards something if you think this is bad, the trajectory it's heading on, I think, is like truly awful. I don't think that this is not a leap that Morozov takes in the piece, but to me, uh, it's it's quite clear here um, that when you say military neoliberalism, that's where my mind goes immediately. Yeah. Um, and and the the this is also not new. the The groundwork for this has been being laid for for a very long time. You know, it's not, it's it's a lot of the same. You know, people. Um, like Gilman Louie, uh, like Henry Kissinger, who were, you know, involved in the first Cold War, kind of, you know, getting in on it. But it's also people like Peter Till and Eric Schmidt, who have done a lot, you know, in the post, post Cold War era, um, to lay the foundations here. You know, Schmidt in particular, we've talked about him in the past. We've talked about him a little bit here, but right, like he's been deeply involved in Washington um, since Barack Obama's 2008 uh, uh, election. I also did not realize that Schmidt was worth $20 billion. Um, so right, he baby. is a, a, a decabillionaire, um, which I did not know he was that fucking wealthy. Um, and, and he's one of these guys though, that he ain't, he ain't sitting back on his billions. He's fucking hustling. He's busy. Uh, and, you know, he's been in deep in Washington policy circles since 2008 election. Um, you know, he was the, the chair, he chaired the Pentagon's defense innovation advisory board between 2016 and 2020. We've talked about that before, um, uh, you know, in some of our episodes on the military, and um, uh, with Kelsey Atherton in particular, we did our our, our 9-11 double uh, feature extravaganza <laughs> um, uh, for our, um, God, our, our 100th and 101st episode or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yep. uh, that was a long fucking time ago. Unbelievable. Um, also, retrospectively, 
Props to us for timing our 100th episode with 9-11. <laughs> from 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> with the, tw- with the that like 20th anniversary of 9-11. I think we planned it better than the guys who did 9-11, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we never got caught. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Didn't even know it until the disclosure years later. <laughs> we started my, my this episode, bo- okay, we said, what? What day can we start? But let's just drop number 100 on 9-11. <laughs> we did have some strategically placed um, uh, unlocked episodes to mess yeah. with the numbering a little bit. Oh, sorry, guys. We're sick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Low-key, we did actually do that a couple of times. We were like, oh, we need we need to like unlock a, a, a couple episodes to make sure we line up. With <laughs> you know, I'm worried that when we come in hot, uh, that the we're not going to hit that first tower. First tower is 100. <laughs> Second tower is 101. And a lot of people don't talk about tower seven, but that's 102. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I feel like uh, Ozymandias at the end of Watchmen, like explaining the grand plan and being like, "Like you fool! Like if there, you thought if there was ago. a way, yeah, like if there is a way for you to change this, I'd be explaining it to you now." I did the, uh, I pulled the lever two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll get back to another fucking mastermind uh, of Eric Schmidt. Yeah, so Schmidt's many, many ventures, um, his deeper and deeper integration into uh, Washington policy circles, as well as the Pentagon. I mean, like when he chaired the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Advisory Board, between those four years, he visited like over 100 U.S. military bases around the world, right? Like That's because he, he loves given, America so much, you know? <laughs> that's right. And he only steps on American soil. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but like that's unprecedented access for uh, like a civilian, right? To... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, be able to get so deep into thing into the Pentagon, and you know he he's now chairing an AI commission. As I mentioned before, he's um, you know now on a government commission for biotechnology. Like as Morozov writes, "quote Schmidt's many ventures to push his Cold War narrative make it hard to keep track." Uh, and, and I mean, as well, he's got Innovation Endeavors, which is his own his own venture capital fund which lavishly funds startups that specialize in military AI, um, you know, and, and, and he's doing a ton of, of stuff here, right? Uh, all, all focused on pushing, pushing this Cold War narrative on this, this America first narrative. I mean, it's to the point where like Elizabeth Warren um, has even recently, you know, as of last December, a story came out that Elizabeth Warren was pressing the Pentagon for more details on Schmidt's involvement with the U.S. administration, suggesting that the Defense Department may have, quote, failed to protect public interest in granting Schmidt so much influence. Uh, So, like, the amount of influence he has is gaining the attention of senators, right, who are like, why does this dude have so much fucking influence on the Pentagon's, um, uh, you know, planning and strategic decision-making here? Um, 
And then on top of all of it, he's got his own philanthropic foundation because they all do. And it's called, it called Schmidt Futures, uh, which, uh, as, as, as Morozov writes on closer examination, turns out to be a for-profit company, uh, even though it's, uh, you know, mar- marketed as a, uh, a philanthropic foundation. And through Schmidt Futures, Eric Schmidt was, was, uh, instrumental in placing the, uh, U.S. Defense Department's new chief digital and AI officer, uh, who uh, a position filled by Craig Martell, who is the former head of machine learning at the ride-sharing platform Lyft. Um, like oh, again, yeah. how can I mean this? The, this story is a bunch of stories of how do you go from doing that to doing this, right? How do you mm-hmm. go from, um, you know, being a, a, a CEO of a video game company distributing Tetris and the, you know, to being the founder uh, of NQTEL? How do you go from being the head of machine learning at Lyft um, to being the first uh, chief digital and AI officer at the Defense Department? Like, it really is your connections. Who do you know? Oh, your company got bought by Robert Maxwell. Congratulations. You're in the intelligence community now. <laughs> um, you know, oh, you, you went to the, the right dinners and, and got a uh, real buddy, buddy with Eric Schmidt. Congratulations. You're in the defense department now, right? Like, uh, <laughs> it, it is a kind of really wild, who do you know? Um, you know, this is a this is the way to to get deeper into the blob um, by getting ingratiated and introduced and integrated with people like Maxwell and Schmidt and so on. Um, I want to read. Uh, oh, uh, all right. So this is this is really fascinating as well. Um, so it was recent. I'm going to quote from Warzov. It was recently in the news. Uh, the Schmidt Futures was recently in the news for funding the salaries of staffers working in the U.S. government, including in positions related to AI policy and tech regulation. How could a company possibly be paying the salaries of administration officials? Well, there's a loophole. Certain nonprofits are allowed to do that. And as nonprofits, they can even receive money from companies. In this case, the nonprofit that receives money from Schmidt Futures, but not only them, is the Federation of American Scientists, a venerated Cold War think tank that traces its origins to the Manhattan Project. Conveniently, its current chairman is the same Gilman Louie of Tetris mm-hmm. fame. Mm-hmm. Again, there is there's literally only five guys uh, in the whole world, um, <laughs> yeah. and those five guys just keep rotating between uh, all of the positions of geopolitical power. They're it, best uh, friends. <laughs> it's a small, small world, and you ain't in it. A lot of the really interesting things here is like, okay, so, we, you know, Morozov and this piece have been trying to establish there are these sort of infrastructures, these hierarchies, these, you know, networks of individuals that are civilians in industry coming into the military bureaucracy. 
um, and that they're military contractors and that they each have convergent and divergent interests that are making it hard to concretely design um, Chinese-U.S. geopolitical strategy, much less a robust industrial policy that will rationalize how we're going to steer the direction of artificial intelligence at home and abroad, right? I think that one thing that's also been, you know, really, you know, fascinating here, though, is the points on which they've come to agree, right? Um, How can we kind of undermine China's tech ascendancy for national security reasons, but also for capitalist competition reasons that allow us to profit, right? Um, Morozov here, you know, hones in on how, quote, Washington tightens the noose around Beijing's neck by cajoling allies like the Netherlands, South Korea, and Japan to stop selling their own critical technology to China. And as usual, it is also using Cold War era legal instruments such as the so-called foreign direct product rule, which can limit what foreign companies can ship to China as long as their products are made using American technology, right? We've talked, you know, I think we our podcast kind of started when we've started, and, and, and one of the early areas we talked about was how um, if you step back and looked at the international system for ICT, you could see how hard it would be to root out China because China was in control of a lot of the standards making um, and because of how expansive China's supply chain was. But then you see the response, uh, you know, the, you know, ambitious is may, might not be the right word, but a big response for the United States in an attempt to get its allies to stop using Huawei technology, right? Um, because Huawei is a national champion. It's one of the companies that are part of China's indigenous uh, you know, state-owned enterprise um, uh, kind of a, a focus plan or strategic focus plan where you know they have these economic zones, they have these state-owned enterprises, or they have private entre- entrepreneurial um, initiatives. And they try to spur these as try to protect them as long as possible from foreign competition to then go overseas and compete um, and often end up becoming, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty integral to this. Right. Um, and so here, the United States, you know, maybe these two coalitions internally on the policy side, the military contractors and the, and the, and the industry titans um, and the military bureaucracy, maybe they all can't really agree on what exactly you're supposed to do, but we can figure out that we need to make AI development costly. We need to figure out a way to profit from Beijing's attempts to become independent, uh, to um, either if that means offering them the thing that they need or filling in the vacuum that they leave behind as we cleave allies and foreign companies from using their products, right? And one of the ways... One of the key ways that this has been done has been focusing on semiconductor chips, right? Um, Morisov wrote also in Le Monde a really great essay on semiconductor chips. I think you know even like a year before, people started to really talk about the, ge- the, you know, the geopolitical importance of it. Well, I shouldn't say people. Before it caught on as a sort of mainstream talking point and input in the discussion about what industrial policy should look like, at this really good uh, art essay on uh, how the global geopolitical uh, you know, competition between the United States and China would manifest in the realm of, of semiconductor manufacturing, right? 
what fabrication, distribution, integration would look like if the two major powers on Earth were competing, right? And so here the strategy is, okay, we need to make China reliant on foreign chips. You'll remember if you, you, know, if you listen to our episode on, on that article, there's a piece where Morozov talks about the attempt to try to, uh, you know, it's complicated by the fact that China has really, uh, you know, deep um, consumer market. Uh, and that a lot of these uh, items have parts that are not immediately, their supply chains are not immediately vulnerable to American uh, legal instruments or even to American allies and their interventions, right? Um, and so he hones in here on another article from um, Foreign Affairs by another person in Eric Schmidt's orbit who writes that, quote, instead of implementing broadbands, U.S. policymakers should work closely with allies to maintain China's dependence on foreign chips and that ensuring that Washington maintains the upper hand as the AI revolution progresses requires keeping China reliant on foreign chips. So what does this actually mean, right? This means, you know, trying to, uh, trying to you know, cobble together an international coalition, uh, trying to do a cyber, uh, you know, trying to, you know, protect or you know, bolster cybersecurity defenses at U.S. chip makers, trying to subsidize them even further, um, trying to turn down contracts from uh, Chinese from Chinese manufacturers and Chinese chip makers, but also trying to limit China's ability to access these advanced chips and either fall behind or rely on increasingly more desperate measures to try to catch up. Right? You know, and as as Morozov writes, what isn't yet clear is whether Beijing would be able to steer an international coalition of some kind to support its agenda. Washington has not been acting alone to counter China, tapping into or even spearheading international initiatives such as the Global Partnership for Artificial Intelligence and AI Partnership for Defense. Recently, AFF, the Schmidt Fund run by Gailman Louie, announced a joint fund with India, Japan, and Australia under the auspices of the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, a joint military initiative of the four countries aimed at restraining China. Most of these efforts are taking place under the banner of promoting democracy and world peace, even if getting there requires boosting defense budgets, military budgets, and letting technology companies and their shareholders get even richer, right? Now, so, th- so then, th- you know, now here we start to see something sharpen a little bit more, right? And another question right, raised, right? The United States is whipping, you know, allies in Asia. Well, where is Europe in all of this? There, and, and there are a few factors here. Europe is junior partner to the United States. Uh, where the United States goes, Europe goes. And even if Europe was able to push back, it typically ends up not being um, that notable of a change. He uses an example of a 1 billion euro innovation fund that's being announced by NATO and it's going to be hosted in Netherlands, the investment management arm, right? That's nothing, right? We're talking, we're talking about countries. We're talking about a con- uh, geopolitical conflict between countries whose their own military budgets are hundreds of billions of dollars and who can use legal instruments to try to redirect trade, trillions of dollars of trade, right? Like Eric um, Schmidt himself has overseen yeah. the investment of multiple billions of dollars, yeah, right? So know. like a billion <laughs> euro fund, like, bro, you're NATO. Come on. Um, Right, exactly. But there's a, there is an interesting pickle here that he does point out. Well, there are two ones. I'll talk about this one, and then we can move into the final one, really, right? The first one is that with Europe, 
Uh, I'll, I'll just quote him at length. While the war in Ukraine has boosted European defense budgets, it will probably be American companies like Peter Thiel's Palantir that will get the most of the new AI-related funds. At this point, it's Europe's privacy laws, not active public policy, that prevents U.S. giants from advancing even further and faster. And it's not just the case of Italy banning ChatGPT. A recent court ruling in Germany has found that the police use of Palantir-supplied data analysis software to prevent crime before it happens is unconstitutional. How long these privacy defenses might last is anyone's guess, right? And that, and the, and the reason he raises that is because, you know, People are convinced by Cold War 2.0. People are convinced about this idea that there's a conflict of values between the United States and China. People are are in Europe and regulators and state planners have been making moves to undermine trade relations and diplomatic relations between the European Union, its member states, and China. And to slowly, you know, open up more of the country to penetration by the U.S. tech giants, right? Because again, as he says, active public policy is not the reason why tech giants are not finding a more uh, amicable environment in in Europe, it's it's existing privacy laws, which will almost certainly be modified or made more porous to allow U.S. tech giants to advance on this geopolitical front, right? Um, and Morozov has talked at length and also in other talks and essays about how Europe did have an opportunity to try to, you know, Europe would talk, there's a period where Europe would talk about technological sovereignty, right? Um but what that often looked like is like we have like some basic uh, suite of privacy laws, social welfare laws, um, and like some autonomy on financing that allows us to pursue certain technologies, but no conception of the geopolitical reality that has left them conjoined to the United States as its junior partner, and no sense or ambition or vision allowing them to play United States and China against each other, even though this is something that they've maybe done in the past, right? But all of that to say the second one, and I think was a really interesting one to see fleshed out is we've gone through this essay. We're talking about how China is part of this Cold War 2.0 narrative. But that also a really important thing is that as much as that narrative exists, uh, as much as that rhetoric exists, as much as instruments have been constructed to do it, it's not actually true. And the fact that it's not actually true is as big of an impediment to uh, marshalling funds, resources, and state intervention in the name of a robust AI-oriented national security strategy. Um, that is as important of a bulwark as anything else, right? That, you know, and, uh, he, you know, he references... Um, this uh, this book by political scientist Linda Weiss, but I think also another book um, or another you know thinker important to reference here is maybe Nancy Fraser in, in her sense also about what the national security state is doing. Uh, Lin Linda Weiss is talking about how the national security state and not Silicon Valley is actually where technological innovation development leadership goes and has been, and that specifically the Pentagon's ability to to, to create novel innovations in pursuits of figuring out how faster, how, how best to kill the enemy faster than they can, you know, realize it or how to kill more of them than so that there's something left over, you know, horrendous thing. That is what led to the Pentagon's groundbreaking technological innovations because there was a real enemy, you know, a real enemy again, meaning like the, there was a sort of, un, the Pentagon had a clear vision USSR is the enemy. We are going to destroy them. We're going to roll them over. We're engaged in a cold war where we have m dozens 
of proxy conflicts across the world, um, regardless of who started them, United States a lot of the time. Um, we're engaged in all these proxy conflicts. We're engaged in ideological battle over the future of civilization, and we're going to develop technology so that we can kill the bastards, right? That's not what China is in the imaginations of these people. China is still very much, I mean, like at the end of the day, it kind of really just boils down to, uh, I don't know, man, they're not white. Would you trust, would you trust a, would you trust a not white guy with advanced technology? You know, it hasn't more, it hasn't metastasized to the, to this idea that there's a real existential apocalyptic threat coming from Beijing, uh, like it did with the Soviet Union. And there's also not the sort of, there was already an earlier wave of a racist panic with Japan and the, and the fear that they would, you know, kind of trample over the American economy and and they didn't. And then maybe there's an idea that, the failure of that to materialize also you know, play, makes it a little bit harder for even the racist fears to manifest as a clear enemy. But that this doesn't mean it's not going to or it hasn't. It's still We're still getting there, right? We're still getting there. Because Weiss argues back in 2014 that if America wants to have real technological innovation, it needs to get over financialism. And it, need, it needs to get back to jingoism. I mean, I, I don't think she argues uh, it needs to get back to jingoism, but it is kind of what it feels like, right? <laughs> that uh, we need a Cold War enemy. That's the, and you know the, the way you do Cold War enemies, you do a good old jingoism. But financialism is ruining this country. You know, she argues financialism, neoliberalism. Whatever slur you want to throw out the financiers, <laughs> <laughs> they are destroying this country's heartland. They're destroying our industrial sector. They're destroying our ability to be a dynamic force that is capable of mounting something as ambitious as a global containment of China for the God knows how many times we tried to do this over the past uh, century, the past uh, 60 years since the, since the end of World War II. And, and, and instead, what we've been doing is just like focusing on any way to squeeze out trillions more of the, on top of the trillions that financiers already hoard and steal and hide away from the rest of um, our society, right? As she writes, you know, as, as Morisov writes, financialism, of course, never ended. What we got is something much weirder. While some reshoring does, in fact, take place, it's anyone's guess whether America will really reinvent itself as the world's primary chip manufacturer. Surprisingly, it's not the downfall of Wall Street, but the rise of Silicon Valley with its desire to capitalize on the AI hype that may have awakened the U.S. from its slumber while turning China into the strategic enemy that the Soviet Union once was. So, it's, so here we you know, get to the end of it, where it's like, okay... Maybe, maybe it is the case that United States needed um, an enemy, but the reason why the that that is necessary for U.S. tech development is not like some law of nature, right? That's a very specific aspect of how the United States developed, how technologies developed, how geopolitics have shaped technological development. Which is to say, right, that. You know, the major technological development or the major, you know, hogwash that people are saying about AI, AI is as important as people insist it is. The reason, one of the main reasons why that will become the case is because the hype and the, and the fear mongering about AI will have spun China 
into the Cold War enemy that it that the security state needs to reshape industrial policy, domestic policy, national security policy, right? And that it's not because it may not even be, be because AI has some inherently disruptive capability, it may not even be because of how AI is applied, but it is because it will end up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. And as a result of that, or, you know, as, as a result of that, or stepping back and thinking through about what are some of the things that we do, we constantly find ourselves thinking about the geopolitical, right? Thinking about how states are interacting with each other, how they're fighting against each other, what kind of products are they denying from one another, what kind of goods and services they're trying to cultivate at home and abroad, what kind of larger military relationships, political considerations, economic um, realities or markets are they trying to construct, and, and seeing that the technologies that come out of it uh, are coming out of that, ge- that higher level geopolitical conflict uh, that the American national security state is obsessed with, right? And that this is why, you know, this is one reason why you can't go back to military Keynesianism. Can, uh, Keynesianism. Keynesianism. <laughs> um, but that's also one reason why, um, the, you know, the only way that military contractors, military bureauc- bureaucrats, um, civilians, industry titans think that they can go back to it is because on some level they do recognize, right, that a national security state in America is the driver of technological growth and de- development. Not that that, and again, to emphasize, not to say that that's good, but that's how it should be, but that's how it is because of how the United States over the past few decades has chosen to finance technological development. And that we are now living with the consequence where we're going to get militarization, we're going to get jingoism, we're going to get Cold War competition, we're going to get this neoliberalism, we're going to get the concentration of computing resources and infrastructure into the tech giant's hands, we're going to get the erosion of privacy laws, we're going to get weird attempts to uh, shoehorn or dismiss uh, labor, social welfare, economic concerns um, into this neo uh, this is this geopolitical uh, gambit, right? But we're not going to get the thing that justified doing all of that. Not not even justified was what these people told themselves was the other flip side of doing all of this, right? Which was, you know, expanding the economic pie and improving the life of the homeland. Because what's almost certainly going to happen, right, is that you know, again, on the one hand. All of this power is going to be concentrated in the tech giants who are creating these networks to profiteer from off one another and to build their influence and to put themselves into these positions of power and to ensure that their companies get the lion's share of the contracts and to ensure that the ones designing the policy, but that we're going to get like Palantir, you know, Robocops and we're going to get like uh, <laughs> general dynamic murdered bots, you know, and we're going to get like, uh, you know, uh, we're going to get artificial intelligence downstream of a military industrial complex that wants to kill China um, projected onto the homeland that thought that maybe you'll get some benefits to the lifestyle or the standard of living. But in reality, you're just getting more militarized tech at home in the midst of the, you know, the, the tail end of this crumbling empire as life is already degrading at home, as the industrial core has been hollowed out, as social services are being hollowed out, as the ecology is collapsing and crumbling right so um you know it's ended on a on a on a note like you were saying jathan right i think that's another angle of why like the concern here should be fascism right because 
you know, the place we end in this piece is not really an enthusiastic or hopeful one, right? It's that we're going to get something weirder, nastier, more brutal, and more farcical, right? The first, you know, the, the first time the Cold War uh, orientation that the United States had was murderous, you know, killed a lot of people, killed millions of people to pursue domination of the world on its own. And in, in, in a sense, could be tragic because no other powers had um, control the, uh, the security the United States had in 1945, and no other power had the the disparity of resources and 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 and, and weaponry and security and prosperity. And what did the United States do with it? Spent the next 60 years trying to figure out how to kill as many people as possible to preserve the resources in as few hands as possible. And now we're going to do it again. <laughs> and this time mm-hmm. we're going to do it again with almost all of the institutions that might have channeled any of that. which was the paltry excuse offered hollowed out and all of the things that were crafted out of that age gone and now just replaced with greedy motherfuckers, sociopaths, saboteurs, industry titans, market fundamentalists, uh, who are worse than the last generation of them, um, aiming, hoping to get the final scraps out of, you know, what's left on this cinder. That, I think that's exactly right, you know, and just to really put a bow on it, wrap it all the way up to the to the top of the show, like you know whenever um the 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 useful idiots do mention China in their you know their op eds about AI, it's always in this two dimensional way, never actually um talking about the 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 fundamental geopolitics here, like what is actually important, right? Like you know, it's all a fucking facade. It's keys jangling um, to distract from everything we just laid out, right? That like at the end of the day, like they need this. the the u s. Uh, hegemony needs it. The Pentagon needs it. Um, Silicon Valley needs it. Like they need this cold war. Uh, you know, they, I'd like as, uh, you know, uh, as, as they get, as they, you know, as, with the military contractors, the primes like Raytheon and Boeing, but also as Silicon Valley gets deeper and deeper into being prime military contractors, you know what they also really benefit from is a hot war, you know, like, Hey, Hey, war is is good business, you know? And, uh, and I think that like, we really can't understand what's happening with AI um, and the development of this technology without understanding that, that very simple, but very, uh, uh, you know, brutal um, kind of point there. So yeah, no, I think you, I think you've really, Put a put a point on everything here, Ed. Like this is this this is what's important here, right? Like, and the 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 power that just the uh, the influence that just like this one network of people have as well. Like, can't really overstate um, how much influence is concentrated in a single network, or maybe two networks uh, of people between Eric Schmidt and Peter Till really is, uh, um, you know, in terms of thinking about military neoliberalism and Silicon Valley Pentagon complex. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's heavy. It's too much. It's too much to have to think about. Uh, we have to think about it. 
don't mean I want to. Don't mean it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's good or enjoyable to. Right. Um, but like for all the uh, talk that we have been doing this year, um, just these last few months uh, about AI, like this is absolutely one of the most, if not the most important wrinkle to all of it. Um, is what is what's uh, what we talked about here and talked through um, as we as we discussed Morozov's piece. So again, you know, we didn't even touch on everything. It's a really deep, um, uh, interesting piece. Tons of tons of very fascinating connections um, that he's drawing as well. Like really kind of filling out that that network diagram of of influence and capital. Um, at the heart of this, uh, and so again, you know, we'll we'll have a link to it in the description. Everyone, you know, you listen to Team K, you gotta read this piece. That's that's mm-hmm. just them's the breaks. That's the requirement. Yeah. Uh, go go read the piece. Um, you know, we we've just given you a nice discussion to help orient you towards it. But go read the piece. Um, soak all this in because it's a uh, it's absolutely important. And and uh, it, 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 this is like this is really only the tip of it, right? Like these people mm. keep getting integrated deeper and deeper. I just saw that, um, this is not a Morozov's piece, uh, but I just saw that Gilman Louie a year ago was appointed, um, as a member of, uh, the president's intelligence advisory board. Uh, oh, yeah, which baby. Is, yeah, which is, you know, a, a really an advisory board to the executive office that provides advice to the president concerning the quality and adequacy of intelligence collection of analysis and estimates of counterintelligence and of other intelligence activities. So, hmm. <laughs> I mean, like these, like, I, like Gilman Louie, you know, my man's operating on a, uh, 20 hour work day, um, <laughs> seven days a week with all these fucking board positions and executive positions, um, that he holds, uh, We're gonna you know, ch- kill the Chinese. He's working overtime to kill the Chinese. He really is. <sighs> That's right. It's a, it's a lot of hard work to, you know, have all those strings in your hand at once and make them all <laughs> dance in unison, right. you know? <laughs> right. Uh, and so, yeah, so again, go read Morozov's piece. Um, and this is, this, this is what we need to think of anytime you see a Tristan Harris or you've all know a Harari or, uh, a Sam Altman or Mark Zuckerberg, like saber rattle about China. Like you got to know that like either they're fucking, you know, useful idiots who don't know what they're really talking about. Um, or, they are, uh, you know, cynical power players who know exactly what they're doing. Either way, um, dangerous in different ways uh, and incorrect in all the same ways. So with that, uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash thismachinekills for additional premium episodes every single week. Um, and so catch us over there for, for more. And until next time, later. Adios.
you, 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 you,